I'm Robert D. Hotton, and I'd like to thank you for listening to the first episode of Donkey Does Hollywood. Some of you may be wondering what I mean by Donkey and what is it that he's doing to Hollywood. Well, I come from an island called Guernsey in the British Channel, and just like those from Wisconsin may be referred to as cheeseheads, or English people can be referred to as limeys, Guernsey folk are known as donkeys, stubborn but loyal old mules. And it's rare for one of us to be living in Hollywood. I aim to make the most of this opportunity and chat with as many interesting people as possible. The Hollywood in the title is not referring solely to the film industry, but rather the characters that inhabit this town. My first guest is Mr. Dan Madigan. Dan is a writer, and as a protege of the late great Toby Hooper, Dan has a keen mind for old school horror. He created the movie See No Evil and spent time writing for one of the craziest and most exciting companies in television, the WWE. Dan is now leading a new project called Lucha Otaku. Stay tuned to hear our conversation on Donkey Does Hollywood. I'm really interested in... uh, in, in the journey that you had growing up, you know, um, your, your love of horror and your love of wrestling and what really brought you to come to L.A. and pursue, uh, pursue a creative life and try, and try and avoid the ordinary trappings? I think it was um, a lack of a grasp of reality um, to some extent because this is a crazy, this is a crazy business. But uh, I grew up originally uh, in a, a mill town north in uh, Massachusetts called Lawrence. And um, I remember I'd walk home every day from school, and there was a, um, a bookstore called The Book and Bottle. And the place was a fire hazard. It was absolutely, it was awful. But they had all these comic books, um, boxes of comics outside. And for a dime, this is when comics were a dime and 12 cents. I'd buy them. I'd go home and read and devour them. And I started, you know, learn, you know I started getting into narrative storytelling, you know, visually with the comic books. Actually, it was comic strips. The uh, I used to read Dick Tracy, and every day I'd cut Dick Tracy on the you know uh, comic strip of the Boston Herald. I'd read Little Abner, and all these comics gave me uh, gave me grounding for like in visual narrative storytelling. So I would buy all these comic books, the book and bottle, and then one day I went into the store. They were selling outside, and I don't think they could afford lighting. So there was the place was dark, and literally. The deeper I went into the store, the darker the store got, but sort of the subject matter, yeah. which is kind of ironic. It's, it's telling. And I remember I would buy these, um, first I'd buy like men's magazines called sweat magazines. These were all these like uh, pulp magazines, and uh, it was all titillating covers and stuff, and artists like um, Mel Crare and um, just different, like uh, Norman Sanders, these pulp artists. And as a kid, it's like, wow, this, you know, all these scantily clad women being tortured and and all this crazy stuff. So I started buying these. <laughs> it's a lot and to take in. I started buying them, and then I started buying um, pulp novels as a kid, you know. Um, and when I first read Conan and Doc Savage and uh, Mac Ball and the Executioner, these were pulp novels, but what caught me was the art. I mean, I see a Frank Frazetta painting or cover, James Bam or Gil Cohen. These were the artists of those books. My mind was, right, this is the character. So I'd buy those books with my own money, and I started devouring all these type of books. And from then, I started reading Jim Thompson. It was very dark. Uh, David Goodis. So at a young age, I was reading a lot of dark material. And that just sort of, you know, fueled. I've always had in the back of my head. Then, you know, at home on Saturdays, I'd play as a kid. And it, at noon, I'd run in front of my grandmother's TV. And there was, from 12 to 1, wrestling. The WWF at the time it was an hour of wrestling. And I'd get my fill of that, and then from one to four, there's creature double feature. Yeah. So everything you want as a kid, I had wrestling in the morning. I had three hours of horror movies, and sadly enough, years later, nothing's changed in my life. I've not matured <laughs> at all out of that. So that was um, all very. That's part of the formulated. I was reading these types of books, these stories. I'd watch wrestling, and to me, there was always a correlation there. Yeah, or some type of correlation. So that's sort of set the groundwork for the way I see things and the way I try, whatever I try to create uh, came from those roots. So who were the wrestlers that really stood out to you during that era? Oh, to me it was always great because, you know, wrestling was territorial. So as a kid growing up, I only knew wrestling from the Northeast. I only knew the WWF. I didn't know 
NWA. I didn't know there was a Ric Flair or Harley Race or Dusty Rose, if you can believe it. I know it, you know. But growing up in that area, what I was seeing was Superstar Billy Graham. He was uh, he was like a comic book come to life. You know, Don Morocco, Roddy Piper, all the names that Randy Savage, all the names that resonate now, Bret Hart. Um, but the one personality that really uh, stuck with me, and to me represents wrestling as an entertainment form, was Bobby Heenan. I mean, I, I used to watch Bobby Heenan on Tuesday Night Titans with Gorilla Monsoon, and Bobby was the ultimate performer. And I look back now, and I compare him a lot to Jack Benny. And I don't know if a lot of people know who Jack Benny was, but he was a great radio performer, TV performer. But Jack Benny would always, he cared about the joke. He didn't say who made the joke, who said it. If the joke was on him, it was fine, but the joke had to live. So Jack Benny was the brunt of the joke. He was very giving that way. Bobby was the same way. Bobby didn't care who said the joke as long as it was the joke or he put people over. He knew he was going to get you know, nailed or something, but Bobby put himself in a position to put talent over. And he knew how to play the crowd. He knew psychology and just his wit. So to me, wrestling was always entertaining. It was always, it was that comic book coming to life. And instead of the panels and the page, it was the ring. So that's what I, I envisioned wrestling. And I, I, at one point in my youth, when I was, a, I was, res, I was wrestling, and I was a powerlifter, I, was, I wanted to go to wrestling school. I was going to go to Killer Kowalski's wrestling school. Um, but, you know, life takes you other directions. Yeah, I, I can definitely relate with the Bobby Heenan comment. I mean, uh, wrestling was in my life earlier than this, but the, the one that I have the clearest memory of when I was younger was watching WrestleMania 9. With uh, with my dad, you know, we always used to watch it together. But that one at uh, Caesar's uh, Palace, oh, yeah. the Coliseum, yeah. and you have Bobby Heenan coming in backwards. And he he knew he'd be the brunt of the joke, and it didn't matter because his job that was his job was putting people over. I mean, how many people could be beat up and put, wake up in a weasel outfit with thirty thousand people che- chanting "Weasel, Weasel"? And he takes a bump better than most guys. So. Um, looking at Bobby was like, okay, this is what the business is about. It's about entertaining people. You know, yeah. it's, it's about putting yourself out there, and really, it's not about. It's a it's a business of egos, but you have to know when to keep keep it in check. And Bobby knew, okay, uh, if I'm the brunt of the joke, it'll be a great joke. That's why I'm, I'm at it. You know. Yeah, and then having Gorilla with him is the straight man, just oh, the perfect yeah. straight man. You you really you need two people like that. You need to have people to play off each other and stuff and it's very hard because uh, some guys are great doing one thing but when you find two people like Gorilla and Bobby together it's an unbreakable team it's like having Laurel and Hardy it's like having Apple Costello you know individually they're good but together it's unbeatable so. yeah, for, for me I, I they're, they're definitely my favorite broadcasting pair out of any sport any genre absolutely me too J- just uh, any radio just the two of them together I had to write an essay about it uh, for for college here and um yeah, you know, I, I I went in for Bobby and Gorilla. Those yeah, two. Yeah, oh, that's pretty great. Yeah, how could you know? I mean, really. I mean, you, and I and I knew some of the guys that produced those shows and directed those shows, and they would just come in off, off the cuff and just do their thing and just have a laugh. And they and Bobby and Gorilla, as antagonistic as they were, were like best friends. Off, they were really very close. Off, so and that that and they that played well because when you're playing someone you hate, when you have an affinity and really love that person, that. that plays out the other way so you could see there was an infection especially the last night when Bob was kicked off the air on Raw when they kick him yeah. out it was just a brilliant and that's some great TV just brilliant TV you can't you can't you can't rehearse that you can't capture that again it's of the moment yeah, and for wrestling fans, it becomes like a, a moment of your life. You know, you remember that. You associate it with, uh, you know, where you were at the yeah. time or the people that you were watching it with. Exactly. It's like your prom date, your first time out, your first job. Oh, I remember something in wrestling. Because it was always like, it's, a lot of times it was a communal thing. You watch wrestling with your friends, your family, your dad. So it's something you do together. Um, wrestling is just one of the oldest sports, and it's, it's entertainment. It goes all the way back, you know, not just generations, but wrestling is always been part of a culture. I mean, professional wrestling today so started in the carnival circuit, you know, so we, we, we traveled around to city to city like 100 years ago in the carnival circuit, and, we, and the wrestling segments became so popular they broke out on their own. But it's always been an entertainment um, first. Yeah. So, um, you know, you have that love of horror and that love mm-hmm. of wrestling. Mm-hmm. So when was the moment you were like, right, this is what I want to do. I want to write this. I'm going to come to L.A. Um, give it a shot. Well, it's funny. I know a lot of people always, I'm going to go to L.A., I'm going to try this and try that. People talked a lot. I never said it. I kept my mouth shut, which is hard to believe. But um, 
I was making plans to come to L.A. eventually to get into special effects, you know, makeup. I was a big fan of all that stuff. Tom Savini. Tom Savini, Rob Boutine, all these practical things just blew me away. Uh, Tom Berman and all these guys said, this is amazing. So I figured I'd like to give my hand because I have a degree in painting. I figured, well, I'd like to give it a shot. And I remember I had a job at a company called Auto Roll back in Massachusetts. It, was a, it started as a summer job and then it became a, a job. And I remember one day I kept saying, I'm going to get to L.A. eventually. And it was a bright, sunny day, and I went outside, bought my, bought my lunch, and I was walking through the company to the, the factory to go outside, and all these guys who'd worked a few years are sitting at their machine eating their lunch. No one's outside in the sun. No one's in the grass. They're all sitting there at their machine. And as I started walking through the company, I couldn't tell where the guy started and the machine ended. It was one of these epiphany moments where I just kept going. And by the time I get to the door... I threw my sandwich away and went to my boss. I said, here's my two-week notice. That was it. It was some sort of wake-up call. So from that moment, I said, I don't know anyone in L.A. I don't know anything about Los Angeles, about this business. But, you know, if I'm going to fail, I'll fail with what is better. So I just drove out, and that was it. Uh, so how was your experience when you first came here? For me, it was, uh, you know, uh, because America is a whole different world to what oh, I'm used to. I can to. imagine. Uh, it was uh, it was a pretty wild experience, but uh, I imagine it's also the same for you because it's so different than oh, Boston. coming a, a kid from Boston driving across the country. And by the way, it's a very big country. I've driven across it several times now. But you, as you drive closer to LA, you have different thoughts, expectations, fears, anticipations. And when you drive into the city, and you realize most people don't know how to drive, <laughs> and you're stuck driving around, and you're seeing everything and with fresh eyes. And it's new, and it's kind of it's intimidating, and it's scary. And I remember I was driving around. I fought for Steve at the time with no air conditioning. And I'm driving around thinking, you know, did I make the right? Did I make the right move? Did I make a mistake? You know, if someone could just give me a sign, some, you know, anyone up there, you know, did I do the right thing? And I happened to be there at that time driving down Beverly Boulevard, and I look to the left, and in a big marquee, I look up, and it says, "The Wild Bunch." And I stopped the car and I said to myself, I couldn't ask for a better sign. That was yeah. the sign. And then that's, and that's the new Beverly Cinema. And I've been going this since I came here. I go there at least once a week. So that was sort of like, okay, I asked the question and the gods answered it somehow. I said, okay, if I see that marquee with that name, I said, okay, I've done the right thing. And it's been a struggle. It's always a struggle. I mean, no matter what level you're on, it's always a struggle. But, you know, I gave it a shot. I'd rather a difficult life in L.A. than, a, than an easy life in my hometown. Yeah. Anytime. Yeah, it really is because it's sort of, and I have friends back home I love dearly, um, some of the best people in the world, but when you stay in one place, you think one way, you sort of live one way. You stagnate, don't you? Yeah, exactly, and it becomes, you know, the mushrooms grow on your feet and you get a fungus on your fingernails and it's like, you got to get out and to go to something like that, it's, it's um, and some people have that mentality, some people are built for that and that's great, I admire that in so many ways, uh, that type of dedication, but... I knew where I was. I was. I would kill myself. I would. Or I'd kill someone. I couldn't stay in that. That I couldn't stay in that. I couldn't stay in that mindset. That non-creative mindset where people, if they anything different, they poo-pooed it, uh, or they were, you know, um, subjugated to what the church said, or outside influences, just you know, um, stopping creativity. Even if it was something creative and you know didn't work, at least it was something. So I didn't fit well in that in that situation. Yeah, I can I can massively relate to that. Yeah. You know, uh, and uh, you know, just feel very, very lucky to be here. Mm. So your, your time in L.A., how, how long was it before you uh, started managing to make headway with creative goals? Well, it's funny. Um, when you get here, you try to secure something. You try to throw that anchor and, you know, grab some security. And I made a bunch of resumes, and I started walking up. I was in Burbank. I rented a place in Burbank, a little room. And I walked up to every place didn't matter what it was if they needed a job. And I just walked, 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 and I ended up the last place of the day was a bar. Uh, Des Reagan's Irish pub is no longer there. And I was a bartender in Boston. And I figured, well, if they need any bar, you know, what, let me ask. I walk in, and then Des, he goes, I just fired someone. You're hired. <laughs> I was like, it was, I mean, it was, so it was fortuitous that um, that happened. So I started working in the bars there. And the money was good, but then you realize that's a dead-end job. And when one thing looked another. I had a connection there, and I ended up working uh, for a Warner Brothers film, an animated movie called Rover Dangerfield. 
So I worked in Rover Dangerfield for a while, and then when that finished up, I ended up getting a connection. I worked for Disney, Disney Animation. And I stayed there for a long time, working on a lot of films there. But you became very complacent and safe. And I saw that as being a downfall. So as everyone was very happy or safe in their job, I started writing. I said to myself, I want to write a film or direct a film or see a movie that I want to see. That, you know, could I, could I actually do something like that? Do I have the skills? So I just sat down without taking a writing course, and I'd want to put down on paper what I'd, what I'd like to see. So the whole time... I'm at Disney towards the end of my tenure that I keep writing and writing and honing my skills if I have any skills and because I could see the writing on the wall I could see the way Disney was moving a certain way that they were going to start getting rid of people and it was a matter of time and they got rid of basically my entire department and I had been at that time working and writing and writing I got some management and it's one of these things where I went on a you know a you know, when you, you, need, you know, um, what's it when you run out of mind that the state gives you some, um, they help you out financially. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So I'm there with the, with the state, and I have this one um, option, and my last weekend's coming up for money, and I go, okay, I don't know what I'm going to do because I have no job, and I have no money's running out, and I sell a script. I sell a script that weekend. It was like, it was like it's like fate. when it Yeah, it was fate. Like and, but, you know, and then you spend so much time Walking that, it, it gets nerve wracking. So I ended up selling a script, which became Sino Evil. And from there, you know, I became the flavor of the week, uh, which that doesn't last long in this town with the flavors change constantly. But I get to meet a lot of people and um, had a lot of meetings. And most meetings in this town come to nothing. I found that out early on that most people yeah. meet and greet, but it's really not supposed to get things made. I mean, it, it takes a sort of a persistence. Um, pigheadishness, you know, stubbornness to get things done. So with See No Evil, that sort of opened some doors for me. You know, may have closed some others on me too, but you yeah. know, still, it was the it was um, that's the first thing I sold to the WWE. And in the meantime, I ended up getting hired by them. So it's kind of this ironic thing where they come, they liked my work, my previous scripts. Uh, they want me to write something for Vince. In the meantime, we start talking about wrestling, and the guys who had run the out here in, in uh, studios, they said, you know a lot about wrestling. I said, well, I wanted to be a wrestler as a kid, so we started talking back and forth, and they said, do you want to write for the show? I said, people write that stuff? I know, I said, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so they, I said, yeah, um, they had me, they go, write whatever you want, write whatever you want, and then send in and see what you think. So I started watching the show at that point, but more on a, not just as a fan, but more of a creative, thinking, okay, what do they want? And I started watching the show just as they were doing the Katie Vick angle. And if, I don't know if any yeah, people... Yeah, a lot of people were trying to trib tribute that to you. No, that was... Okay, I, I can ruin my own career. <laughs> I, I, and trust me, I have. But uh, the Katie Vick angle, and even for me, I mean, it's a necrophilia angle. And listen, if it's done well, I'm all for necrophilia. But it just wasn't a good angle. It was just, it was just shot badly. It was, just, it was The whole concept wasn't done well. And it was a whole thing about necrophilia. And it just... And I said to myself... Watching what they did, I said, with the exception of, I guess, a kitty snuff porn film, these guys will do anything. And so I wrote this kind of crazy scenario. Uh, it was a six-month scenario, as I figured, let me long-term this. And I wrote about a group of um, professional wrestlers, of course, out of Latin America, South America, called The Coven. And they want to come into uh, America, and, um, and they're making their way for their leader called The Beast which is all the horror movie stuff I, I've influenced, and they're going to possess everyone's soul. They want to go to SmackDown and possess everybody's soul, which I don't know why, but that was their calling card. And so at the end, the end of my story angle was Stephanie McMahon was going to be possessed by this group of demons, these demonic wrestlers. She's going to be tied to the ring, much like you know Reagan from The Exorcist, and Vince McMahon is going to fight his way through the crowd, fight through the wrestlers with holy water, throwing it upon the ring, screaming, "The power of Vince compels you! The power <laughs> of Vince compels you!" And the ring was going to levitate up and down. And so I wrote this crazy scenario, and I sent it to them, and and Stephanie called. She goes, "This is the craziest thing we've read. This is the most insane thing we've ever read. We want to meet you." So they fly out to meet me. We're talking, and uh, I'm interested. I don't know the work schedule, and they said, "Okay, we work seven days a week." There's no, no holidays, no days off. Uh, it's the hardest job in, in show business. I said, I'll take it. Yeah. I, I didn't even think twice. God knows why I was so stupid. I said, I'll take it. So I jumped at it, and that was the start of my um, 
um, my career in wrestling. So, I mean, how did it feel that, you know, they're flying to meet you? Oh, well, it wasn't, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's other people that were meeting. Uh, yeah. I, yeah, I'm sure, I mean, listen, I, I'm, I'm sure they wouldn't open the door just to meet me, but I'm sure they had some meetings in LA, but, you know, I met Stephanie at that time, and she was very impressed with the, the stuff I'd come up with. Uh, at least she said so. And the offer, it was such an insane offer. Um, I'd go to Stanford, Connecticut, and then I would um, travel on the road all the time. And it was just a crazy workload. It was a work, 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 work. And I said, I would do it. I just want to see what I was made of. And so a couple weeks after this meeting, they fly me to Stanford, um, which is the center of no entertainment whatsoever. It's just Dullsville. It's Titan Towers. Yeah, it's what it is. It's basically, but most of the time I was with Vince. Um, I was working 80 hours a week. I mean, I have a sleep disorder, so I was always, I was always up anyway. And um, so I'd, I'd go there early um, Monday, and we'd get on the flight. We'd fly out to do a do raw, and we'd do SmackDown the next night. We'd come back, do the shows, you know, meetings. Um, it was constant, you know. Then we'd go out maybe Saturdays, fly over pay per view on Sunday. Um, but you learn a lot. I mean, you working for Vince, you can. You learn a lot. I mean, my first night on the road, I just sit back. I thought, okay, I'll watch. I'll just, I'll just watch. Wrong. They gave me a script. You direct these segments. I'm like, what? I go, direct what? So I grab my camera guy. <laughs> I grab my lighting guy. So you're the lighting guy. You're the camera guy. You're the stage man. Let's talk. And my first night was a baptism of fire. So after two weeks, you're like, it's guerrilla filmmaking. Yeah. So if you can work for Vince, you work for anybody. I mean, really. I mean, if you can sit there next to Vince or get stuff through him and he's very meticulous he's very particular what he likes and I admire that so and I appreciate it uh, that was my training ground well, what was it like your first meeting with Vince because he can be a really intimidating character oh, absolutely it's funny I had seen Vince prior to this I, of course I'd watched Vince on TV in WWF as a kid this is he was always the announcer figure not knowing the time he was behind the scenes he was the owner I didn't know this but I ran to Vince once I saw him once the Cape Cod Coliseum, which he used to run that wrestling out of there. I was waiting in line with my buddy to watch The Clash. I was standing in line, and Vince goes to the box office. And I go, this is Vince McMahon. And I, he seemed bigger than life then. And this is like 1980-something when The Clash was playing. And then to meet Vince personally, it's like this is a you know childhood guy dream come together. Yeah. And it's a culmination of like you know uh, all these things. And he is an intimidating guy, but he's also a very focused guy, and that's what I admired the most. That's what I learned a lot. I learned a lot from Vince. I learned a lot from Paul Heyman. Yeah, I learned a lot from Paul Heyman. But you know, Vince was the type of guy that, as I said, he's the alpha dog's alpha dog, and you have to admire that. I mean, he he asked nothing of his team that he wouldn't do. And yeah, I mean, you look at the stuff that uh, not just Vince, but Linda, uh, oh. Stephanie, uh, Shane, the, the things that they put them themselves through mentally and physically it's, for the audience. It's insane. I mean, one of the less one of the best matches at the last WrestleMania was Shane McMahon. Oh, it was awesome. And the Miz, that was a great. That was an amazing match. That was just an amazing match. And I was, and I was had my doubts about that match. You know, Shane coming back. I'm always have these doubts about when you take time away from the boys. Yeah. And someone from the back comes over and takes a big segment of time away from to get someone over, but that match really paid off. That was a good, that was an interesting match. And you think how the Miz was ten years ago, yeah. and he had to work hard to get respect. Oh, oh, I was there when he came in. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and and then now you see him that I, I hadn't followed the feud, but I always come back for Royal Rumble and WrestleMania. Yeah, and uh, they made me care. They made yeah. me care in that match, and. Uh, you wanted to see it, and and then you know you, you don't want Shane to get too hurt, so your emotions are going oh, it, backwards and that's forwards. That's the that's the great thing about and most people people aren't wrestling fans; they just see a couple of guys in the ring um, doing crazy stuff. But there's a psychology behind they're wrestling. Telling a story. There's a storytelling, and it's the oldest storytelling process there is because you're you're invested in these characters. You have, I mean, you go back pre-biblical stuff. It's all about conflict. I mean, everything's conflict. Everything's resolved in either some great Armageddon battle or some casting Satan out of heaven. There's always the resolve. There's always some sort of conflict. Yeah, so the, wrestling, the power of point. You exactly. Know, what's what's the point? What's the resolution? Exactly. And so, no matter what craziness goes around outside the ring, everything has to culminate inside the ring. And so that was, I think, that 
one of the things that drew me to wrestling was hey, this is the comic book coming to life. This is the you know the martial arts movie I watched as a kid. This is all the horror stuff. It all comes together and, and everything is resolved in the ring until the next match. But you know, you, there's a sort of like um, cleansing of the palate after a big card. So you know? as a as a writer, do you have much control over who you're writing for? You know, I, I know that they definitely like allocate you people. Yeah. But um, was there ever a situation where you you saw a wrestler that you weren't allocating? You thought I have something for this. Well, guy. that's funny because um, a couple of times. Eddie Guerrero came to me and he says, I want you to write for me, Dan. I mean, I was, became good friends with Eddie. And um, I sort of understood where he was coming from. And he said to me not so many words that the people he was working with didn't really understand him. And they were putting him in situations that he wasn't comfortable with. And I spoke to Eddie a lot and I would give him ideas. He loved him. Um, we were doing a, a bit with JBL, John Bradshaw. And this is when John had just became the JBL character. Yeah. And he he left the APA and he changed his whole persona. It was a great it was a great turn for him. And John was uh, at the point hunting Mexicans at the border, a lot of like yeah. Elma Fudd, right? Imagine that now. No, you couldn't do it. It was crazy. So yeah. I wrote I wrote all this stuff for him, and and John did a great job. And now we're in El Paso cutting this promo in the back room, and this uh, Eddie Guerrero, Chavo Guerrero, Chavo Senior, all watching us do it. And I'm with JBL, and I'm filming him. The crew's filming him, and we're going over what I wrote. And J- John goes. You know, when, when immigrants come to America, they come to Ellis Island and they see the Statue of Liberty and they look up and they see that beautiful lady up there with, the, with this torch. It means liberty, but not the Guerreros. Not the Guerreros. They snuck over under night, hiding under burrows, coming through America, through the you know, Rio Grande, sneaking into this country. And John sat there and destroyed the Guerreros, tearing them apart, because that's what he does is he heal. And after that, Eddie turned to me and said, that's amazing. Please write for me. I mean, the girls are high five. I mean, we just tore them apart because they, yeah. they understood it's the business. And yeah. Eddie goes, I want you to write for me. So he asked me then, he asked me, we did a show in LA, um, but certain people in power didn't want Eddie to, to leave. You know, they, were, they wanted to put the fingerprints on Eddie, and I think that was wrong. Eddie reached out, so I did as much as I could without stepping on toes. But I, they sort of saw me as a heel. Vince always said that. He goes, you, you think like a heel which is a, a villain. So I worked for Undertaker and Kane, Kurt Angle. I did some fun stuff with the FBI, the Dudleys. Um, but yeah, anyone who was sort of on the healer side, yeah, I gravitated towards that. That's how I think. So I, did, I, I mostly worked with those guys. Well, I mean, the great thing about that angle with JBL and Eddie Guerrero is that, uh, you know, for, for those that are listening that aren't necessarily wrestling fans, by having JBL, you know, be so... Um, be so flippant and yeah. uh, horrible with his words, you know, it, it makes the audience want to see him get beaten. Yeah. And, and it, you know, it puts a fire under the Guerreros to, oh, to, to do it. And, and, and John, do it. John grabbed this character and ran with it because he comes out as this big Texas type of, you know, like an like a oil type of guy, like a Texas, you know, blowhard. And he would come out in the limousine and, the, and he was brilliant at it. And we, it blew off with a, an amazing match out here. I think it was a, maybe Great American Bash in L.A. A match with Eddie and John, one of the bloodiest matches I've ever seen. And it was like a bloodbath. Um, there was a lot of juice everywhere. And I followed Eddie back to the uh, locker room by following his blood. And he, he lost a lot of blood. They were going to take him in an ambulance out to the hospital. And I'm talking to John backstage. He's getting stapled in the head no, no, the stapling is setting us. What do you think of the show? I go, it was amazing. It was absolutely, it was a bull rope match. It was absolutely an amazing yeah, I match. Watching that. And it was just two guys really giving everything they have. And people say, it's wrestling. But yeah, but at the end of the day, when you watch a concert and a guy comes off soaking wet and exhausted, he gave everything he had. You watch a performance on a film, the guy gave everything he had. You watch a Super Bowl with Tom Brady, he gave everything he had. So when someone is in that, that venue, and they give it all they have. You have to admire that. You have to, when a guy comes backstage and he's sweating, exhausted, bleeding, he left it all in the ring. And you have to admire that type of professionalism. Well, and, and also, you know, for, for those two wrestlers in particular, they were always great wrestlers. Oh, yeah. But then, um, you know, you had that kind of time where you had a lot of big wrestlers leave and there was this almost vacancy at the yeah. top. Yeah, there was. And uh, they proved themselves. They, yeah, it they, was. They earned that main Because uh, SmackDown... I don't care what it says. For a long time, it was always the redheaded stepchild 
was Raw was live. And you, how, how was the rivalry between the two? I mean, that's that's often spoken about. Well, when I was there, there was always there'll never be a crossover. Raw will be Raw and SmackDown will be SmackDown. And I always thought that was, you know, counterintuitive. It's still wrestling. It's still the same corporation, same company, the same universe. Um, only on certain pay-per-views would there be a crossover. And I thought we were missing some great angles there. But there was um, there was always some animosity, you know, hidden in between, I think, the creative teams and stuff. There was some camaraderie. But still, you're in a situation there where, you know, you're in a room where everyone's waiting for you to make a mistake. And like I said, I learned a lot from Paul Heyman. I would sit with Paul. we talk a lot. And I learned a lot from him. But other, other than that, I mean, you're really in a situation where uh, it's sink or swim out there. And I think um, SmackDown was always kind of rele- relegated to being the, the stepchild until we started blowing them out of the water. Then Paul started really getting ratings going afterwards, too. After I left, he started taking over. And when, you know, Taker started coming on the show, we had Brock Lesnar come on, Eddie Guerrero. All of a sudden, you had these guys who were from ECW, uh, the smaller guys, the Van Dams, the mm-hmm. Cruiserweights, the Ultimo Dragons, the guys, the Ray Mysterious, the guys that can really work. They can really put on a show, and instead of cutting a 20-minute promo, you're putting on a 20-minute match. That's what the fans want to see. And, I mean, it's amongst my friends and I, you know, we, it's unequivocal SmackDown was the best during that oh, I, era. Well, thank you. I, <laughs> you know, I, I'm sure I take some modicum of credit for that. But, yeah, it was interesting, some of the angles that came up with these. You had some sort of, you know, I think we had more freedom there because we weren't, we were done, we were taped on Tuesday and showed on Thursday. Whereas when I worked on Raw, it was the night of the show, everyone worked. I mean, even though I was on SmackDown, I worked on Raw. It was all hands on deck. Um, but I think, you know, once that, you know, that the live event's over, you know, if there was a mistake on Tuesday, you could sort of sweeten it. And uh, so many times Michael Cole and Taz were uh, sweetening stuff the next night. And, you know, and I know they hated it. You know, I'd be there and they'd be walking begrudgingly, you know, doing voiceover and stuff. When you do it live, it's just that's it, you know. It's all, and you throw it out to the wind. Yeah, hmm. that, that, that's that's really interesting. So, with, with your time uh, at SmackDown, how was it w- working with Paulie Dangerously? Well, you know? Paulie Dangerously, Paul Heyman. <laughs> um, Paul is another bigger than life character. Um, I remember the first time um, we were in we we were in Kelowna, which is a, up in Canada, and I couldn't find it with a map. You know, it's so far up there. And we're in an agents meeting, and Paul was sitting in front. I remember he was talking to one of the writers, and I'm sitting in the back of the room. And he looks over, and I could hear him say, who's that guy? And I lost Dan Madigan, and we're talking, and people are talking. After the meeting, Paul comes up, and he goes, I heard about you. Oh, I've heard about you, too. We meet, and so Paul's sizing me up and stuff, and he was on SmackDown as one of the – as a consultant writer, but he basically ran the show. I mean, you would defer to Paul. And I started talking to Paul. We had a lot in common, very streetwise. Um, but he had a different approach to wrestling coming out of ECW as opposed to coming up through the WWE. So it was two different mindsets. So I started listening to Paul, and I would have these crazy ideas. I'd run by him, and he'd go, okay, keep going, keep talking, keep talking. And he let me finish the idea. He goes, okay, I like it. I'll tell you why that, that's not going to work, why this is going to work. That can work. And he would break down everything and have a you know, really scientific explanation for what, could, what angle could work. So I learned a lot from Paul about, you know, um, creating an angle, setting it up, letting it breathe, uh, and just different things. You know, you, we travel with someone on the road, you, you're with someone for a while, you go back and forth, and you listen to someone talk, you understand what they're talking about, and it's what they say and what they mean. So I learned a lot, I learned a lot from, from that just by observing him work in the room. You know? Yeah, Paul, Paul's definitely an interesting character. You know, um, a lot of people use the word genius with him, and I don't think that's too far from the truth. I, I think he's really, really smart. Yeah, I think Paul's smart. I think Paul has a... And I, I, there was a book that came out um, called The Ring of Death about the, um, the Benoit tragedy, and I, I'm quoted in And I think the quote that I thought about Paul actually summed up everything. Um, the time when ECW was really you know, getting hot, hot, I compared the WWE at the time to Arena Rock, Mm-hmm. Like the big, big arena shows, and they come fill everything, like 100,000 people, and it was the same show. And ECW was punk rock. So the yeah. streets, it was more raw, it was more kind of like visceral, and it was more hands-on, DY type of thing, you know? So I think um, Paul, with ECW, hit the right time. There was a certain, like, a lag for the fans, 
and it, they, it wasn't an NWA thing, it wasn't a, a TNA thing, it wasn't a WCW thing. They needed something else, and Paul and ECW fit that. It was very, it was grunge before grunge. It felt authentic. Yeah, it did. It felt like you was in a basement, which it was. It was in a basement. It was in a bingo hall. It was um, a bunch of guys you go drinking with, but it was just so immediate and in your face that it, it, it was lighting in a bottle. Yeah, and you didn't know what was going to happen. And a lot of people, um, you know, they, they, they talk down about Vince Russo. But um, with Vince Russo during that era and with, uh, you know, ECW going off, it was car crash television. You yeah. didn't know what was going to well, happen. That was the great thing. You don't know what to expect because that was the great thing about um, then. You have no idea. And they, yeah. they always a swerve. They always have an angle. And it's dangerous TV. I mean, poly dangerous. I mean, it's, you don't know what's going to happen. And... I think that keeps you on the edge of your seat because you become complacent, not just wrestling fans, but people in general become complacent and you get in little safe zones. And I think once you shake it up a little, you, you go, oh, you step back and go, <laughs> yeah. what's, what's happening? What's Paul got up his sleeve now? I mean, I think the great example is when Paul had uh, Taz and Sabu um, yeah. wrestle, he kept them apart for 18 months. A year and a half, that's, un, that's yeah. unheard of. You wouldn't even think about that. It wouldn't be 18 minutes. But Paul kept the crowd going crazy and have these guys rub up, up and, you know, and they'd be teasing. But when they finally got in the ring and blew it off, the crowd went insane. You know, yeah. it was worth the payoff. Today, people are so impatient with an angle that if the angle doesn't come right away, you know, it doesn't breathe, it just it goes. And I was the victim of that. So I like the fact that Paul, he knew when to let things play out, play out, play out, and then pull it in. And then you get you know, most of your money. The biggest, big for the bang. Yeah, I mean, definitely um, the, the greatest thing about that era was not knowing what's going to happen each week. So it became must-watch television. Yeah. You know, whatever you were doing Monday night or... Yeah, yeah, you had to watch. The, you had to go. Which, because, you know, you don't want to be the one guy not knowing what's going on. Yeah, I mean, I was in high school at the time. So mm-hmm. if you were to have gone to high school the next day... It would all be ruined for you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah it's every, it. No one knows how to keep a spoiler. <laughs> yeah. That's it. And um, the exciting kind of aspect from that era was definitely something that you brought in with your writing. I still very, very clearly remember the moment Snitsky kicked the baby. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, uh, <laughs> that's another one. Yeah. I get. Yeah. I get that a lot. And I, I'm friends with Gene still. He's a great guy. Um, but, you know, there are certain things. Well, here was here's what was the challenge. Because at the time, we're doing this angle with Kane and Lita, where basically Kane says, uh, Vince says to me, I want Lita to have Kane's baby, and she doesn't want to do it. I said, well, it's called rape, Vince. It's basically, <laughs> it's a, you know, it's, it's a felony, it's a crime it's in, in any culture. And, but how do you work around that? So we had the situation where Kane was stalking Lita, and eventually she's going to have his baby. And it was very hard. It was a tightrope to walk. And then uh, this is what I learned from This is a great piece of insight I learned from Vince. At that point, Kane was the most hated person on the roster because he's a hulking rapist type of character. And, and Glenn's the nicest guy in the world in reality. But Vince goes, we're going to get him so hot, we're going to get Kane so you know, villainized that we're going to turn him to a baby face. I'm thinking, really? How's this going to happen? He says, you get someone to the point where everyone despises him and you turn him. And, I saw how, and I'm thinking, how's he going to pull this off? And, and within one match, I saw it happen when the Snitsky... Because Kane goes in the ring, has the stalking, you know, um, villainous, you know, uh, character who just wants, you know, he wants Lita to have his baby. And then Snitsky comes in, there's uh, some turmoil. Lita eventually loses the baby, which is a very hard angle to write. And Kane goes from this stalking type of monster to a grieving father. And all of a sudden, you see this transformation right in front of you. And all of a sudden, Snitsky's up there going, It wasn't my fault which it was, and we had fun creating that line, but you see the transformation right there. So the thing about wrestling and storytelling is you go from babyface to heel to heel to babyface very quickly. And to be a complete wrestler, you have to do that transformation. you got to go from the dark side to the light and back and forth. So the Snitsky thing was really um, a great, because he ran with it greatly. It wasn't <laughs> my fault. And he still says that to me. He'll still text me that stuff. And But it was a great run with him. I think he was a great character, Snitsky and Kane. Um, you know, and it, it ran its course. So, um, you know, your, your time with Kane must have been... Uh must have been really interesting because, you know, not only were you writing for him in WWE, but also with See No Evil. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Um, when I wrote the script, um, they said, we have a character, mine with Kane, this Kane character. And I basically, I figured, okay, um, what can I come up with? 
and I just thought of all the stories I had in the back of my mind. I pitched it to Vince's people out here, and they seemed to love the idea, and they gave the treatment to Vince. Vince said yes, and I wrote the script based on the treatment. And when I met Kane, Glenn, he, he had read the script. We talked about it a lot, and we would go back and forth and confer, but then he went to Australia to film it, with Gregory Dark, the film down there. Now, contractually, I was supposed to be on location to film, but to be honest, I didn't want to get on a plane to go to Australia to be on a film set to do nothing. And so I was on the road anyway, traveling with Ron Smackdown, so I didn't push the issue. I didn't really want to go to Australia. And, um, but Kane enjoyed, he enjoyed the process, and I tried to take from his character. I didn't want to make it so far from his wrestling persona that people wouldn't, you know, and as his character in the wrestling world is this, like, large-in-life villain, well, let me just build that cinematically. Let me see if I can keep that going with a little more horror to it. And so um, he was gone for a while. He would come back, and then we we never really talked about it. it was that we were so busy with wrestling, you yeah. know, so it was so busy. So it was, everything is based on doing that show, that everything else in your life. And I could see with guys who are on the road 10, 20, 30 years, that's all they know because yeah. you're so consumed with doing the show. By the time the show's over, you got another one to do. Yeah, like it's the next, next day. Thing, next it's, thing, it's like you're doing, you're doing Raw SmackDown, then House Show, House Show, you're traveling again. So you're stuck in this vortex, this bubble where, I mean, you really um, get lost there. And I was like, wow, I can see myself getting lost in this world. And I, I had to extricate myself from that, you know? Oh, like w- one rumor that comes up with that is that Vince had asked for there to be a scene where uh, Kane exposes himself to mm-hmm. reveal a uh, three or four foot member. Oh, yeah. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> it's um, you know, I, I remember Vince. I would never, I never wanted to talk about the movie in the writers' room. I wanted to stay. I was, you know, there was some jealous vibes I could tell, and I just want to stay. When we're in the writers' room, it should be wrestling. And I would, Vince, I'd say, well, Vince, we could talk about the movie outside. We would meet outside. We talk about, you know, maybe some ideas for the film. It was, that it was being filmed at the time. And there was one time where. Were in the writers' room, and the Kane, the Kane character originally was encased in chains. His body was encased in chains, and Vince goes, "Wouldn't it be great if he started like yanking his chains?" What I mean, he's yanking his chain, and he's, you know, he's. I go, "Yeah, Vince, he's yanking his chain. I get it, but I don't think it's going to work in the scene, right?" <laughs> and then I remember one time we're talking about the wrestling, and Vince, he just has his look in his eye, this faraway look in his eye, and he just says, "You know what would be good in the movie?" I said, "What would be good in the movie, Vince?" If Kane opens up his pants and has like a three-foot penis come out. And I sat th- I, I, I didn't know if I was hearing the right thing. I thought I was having a stroke because the words were coming through. <laughs> I said, he, I don't understand these words and the way he's saying them. And everyone else in the room was like, oh, that's a great idea, Vince. You know, I'm like, I go, that's an awful idea. <laughs> I said, I, I mean, everyone is like, yes, Vince, it's great. I'm like, this is a terrible idea. And he looks at me, I go, Vince. I go, listen, don't get me wrong. I want a three f- movie with three-foot penis. I do, but not this movie. I go, any type of empathy, any type of, you know, we with the fans, we're going to lose right away. We're going to lose right away. It's not going to happen. I just think it's a bad idea. I don't see how I'm going to write this in. And he was sort of begrudging. He wouldn't quite take me, you know, what do I know? And then Gregory Dark, the director, I told him, he's like, are you kidding me? And so he goes, Vince, here's what's going to happen. No one in the world will promote it. They'll get an NC-17. No one's going to, you know, you'll get no trailers like this. And basically... He convinced Vince it's a bad idea. We had to go hit him with the pocketbook. I go, Vince, this really isn't one of the most strategically thought out things, you know. And in the back of my mind, I could see how great it would be. But I said, this isn't the one you want to do, Vince. Not this one, you know. So that was kind of um, I admire the fact he got he went for it. But I said, you know, this is wrong. I mean, that, that's kind of really, I suppose, part of the uh, creative experience with someone like Vince, and that he's always firing on all cylinders. Oh, always, yeah. Whatever idea you have, just say. Just we throw it, and like, there was yeah. great things. I would say with Vince, we talk about, um, I'm a big wrestling historian, big fan, so mm-hmm. he would pull me aside. We talk about things. We talk about like Toots Mond, his dad, Strangle Lewis, and he knew I knew a lot about the history of it. So a lot of times before the meetings, we would talk about stuff, and he opened up to me a few times, and um. He said something that was very, very telling. He said, I wanted to be the biggest wrestling promoter in the world, and I am, and I screwed myself. I said, what do you mean by that? He goes, he goes in the day, you know, when I had my little territory, my fiefdom, if there was a wrestler somewhere out in the country or the world, by the time they got to me, they'd work the territories, they'd work the system, and they'd, mm-hmm. get, they'd be already well-seasoned. Today, the systems are gone. Mostly, this is, at the time, the territories are gone. Vince had 
and golfed them all. So there was a lot of raw, there was a lot of green guys getting to Vince. I could, I could see what he meant. He goes, you know, I, I, I grew so big. I grew so big that I destroyed everything. But now there's a resurgence. Now the territories are coming back. Now there's yeah. a resurgence. Now, and that's when I sort of saw my, my opportunity with my partners to go, oh, this, this is different now because Vince had become so big. And I think a lot of the fans became complacent. And I think this was the opportunity that me and my partners waited for. You know, the, the, time, the timing is now. And, and, and now you guys, uh, you, you and your partners, you formed Lucha Otaku. Can yes. You, can you tell Lucha, me a little bit about Lucha that? Lucha Otaku, which means fight geek. Uh, I had been partners with Gary Lee Jackson for a long time. Uh, I had written the book Mondo Lucha Gogo, this book about Mexican wrestling, uh, Lucha Libre. And it ended up being at the front page of the LA Times one time. Uh, interview, a small interview grew big to a big interview because I kept talking and talking. And... Um, Gary Lee ended up seeing this on the Times, and he uh, he's, he kind of followed my career, and I didn't know him at the time. So I get a call from Gary Lee Jackson. He goes, uh, "Are you Dan Madigan who wrote Mondo Lucha Gogo?" I go, "Yeah." Are you Dan Madigan who wrote for the WWE? I go, "Yeah." Are you Dan Madigan who you know wrote Cena Weaver? I go, "Guilty in all accounts." <laughs> and he goes, uh, "I represent. I manage a certain wrestler." I like to talk to you about that, and in the back of my mind, I go, "I'm done with wrestling. I'm, I'm, this, I'm done. I'm, I've washed my hands." And the only wrestler I wanted to work with, who I didn't really get a chance to work with, was Ultimo Dragon, mm-hmm. because Ultimo was leave as I was coming in. Ultimo was sort of leaving. We, we just crossed crossed paths for a short time. In the back of my mind, I go, "This better be Ultimo Dragon. I'm going to hang up." And Gary goes, "I manage Ultimo Dragon." I said, yeah. "What?" And so we ended up meeting. And we met at a cigar place in Bourbon, and um, down the street, Studio City. We talked, and he laid out all these ideas he had for years, these concepts and ideas. I mean, storyboards and scripts, and it was, he looked like some sort of bag lady with crazy stuff. And we talked, and after 20 minutes, we shook hands and we go, "We're married," which is in our world, we're partners. Yeah. And so Gary and I, through thick and thin, we've gone through different permutations of like working with Ultimo and he and Gary is the only um, licensed contract manager of Ultimo Dragon in the, in the world so you know Gary's been very loyal to Ultimo and we've been trying to build stuff around there and then we got our third wheel in our group Mitch Burlow and I knew Mitch as a creative guy an entertainer he's a singer performer a go-getter but he has this type of energy that I think we needed in the team because me and Gary were so diverse in wrestling we needed someone who wasn't so into wrestling at the time but had a different creative output. So the three of us have to come together and we formed Lucha Ataku. And the idea behind this is, you know, we see wrestling as entertainment and there's different entertainment aspects that we like. So we're combining wrestling with music. They've got DJs now. It's like we're like a kind of management firm. We've got certain artists, DJs, artists. So we're sort of like creating this little network this yeah. banner of Lucha Taku Fight Geek and under that banner comes Puro Lucha which is the wrestling portion of that which Gary and I and Mitch you know we all segue into this as well and Puro Lucha is a combination of the wrestling we like which is Japanese strong style mm-hmm. and Mexican Lucha Libre and for the longest time we were trying to create a venue where you have the aesthetic of Mexico's Day of the Dead yes, and uh, Japanese Kabuki Theater and even though they're dissimilar, they have so many things crossovers that that's what we wanted. That's what we wanted this look. So we were coming together trying to think, we have this great wrestler, Ultimate Dragon, but we needed one more thing, one more piece of the puzzle. And in comes Sonny Ono, who's Ultimo's confidant. He's been in the business a long time. Wrestling fans know. From WCW. WCW. He's the man, that the self-made man. with the su- He created the selfie. But Sonny has a very interesting background. He goes back way back with Eric Bischoff and stuff. And we started talking to Sonny and kicking ideas around. We told him what we were doing. We told him Lucha Taku. We told him our uh, subdivision called Puro Lucha. And he was very intrigued. And last year, he was working with Booker T uh, on a show called um, Reality of Wrestling. And they got a uh, young wrestler there called uh, Rex Andrews. Interesting guy. Talented guy. And they sent Rex over to Wrestle in Japan at Wrestle One. And he videotaped his entire time there called the Rex Files, which is a yeah. fun name. And it's on Fight TV. And I'm talking to Gary, I'm talking to Mitch and Sonny, and Sonny comes up with the idea, hey, we can expand upon this. They, we sent one guy over to Japan. What happens if we send several? So we started brainstorming, and 
in the meantime, we started working with the Inoki Dojo. Yeah, uh, owned by Antonio. Antonio Inoki, yeah, the great, the, the great wrestler, you know, the famous wrestler. I mean, uh, fought Muhammad Ali. Yeah, he fought Muhammad Ali. To, to a draw. Well, it, in reality, if he, he probably could have killed Ali if he wanted to, but there were too many restrictions yeah. upon him. Um, but he gave Ali quite a beating in the legs. You know? Yeah, and, and not just that. Uh, I read uh, an article about Antonio Inoki uh, where um, when there were some Japanese uh, hostages in Iraq, he personally yeah. went over there to have words with Saddam Hussein and bring them back. Yeah, he is a statesman. <laughs> he's, a, he's an ambassador of goodwill. He's one of those recognizable people in Japan and government. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of power behind There's a lot of force he's behind this. He, he is a, a mega superstar, not just in Japan, throughout the world. And we ended up, ha- just fell into our lap that his son-in-law is the Durango Kid. And that's someone I've worked with before, uh, one of the top wrestling hands in the business. Um, he's worked in Mexico and Japan, uh, top luchador, one of the top trainers out here. He runs a, a school, the, the Noki Dojo Wrestling School. And so he approaches Gary and I, he has his dojo, and he wants us to work with him. So we figured, well, this is a great idea. We'll have tryouts to get guys to go to Japan. Now, there's a couple of wrestling promotions in Japan, but the one that jumped out at us, the one that is, is, is Wrestle One. It's uh, the Great Muda. The Great Muda comes out of there, yeah. Kaz Hayashi. So this is amazing. We said, let's put something together. So Sonny put his, you know, his nose to the grindstone. We started throwing ideas around, and we started reaching out to the dojos. And there's several other dojos in the country. So what we're doing is now, instead of having one wrestler go to Japan, we want to get 12 wrestlers or 10 wrestlers where we can. And we get, we get schools in uh, this one in, a wood, in a Bridgeport, New York, called the House of Glory. We've got um, uh, the Power Factory down in Georgia, which is down in Northcrest, Georgia. We've got um, Bumps and Bruises Pro Wrestling Academy. That's in Dallas, Texas. Uh, we've got um, us. We've got uh, the um, uh, Hood Slam. So we've all these different uh, wrestling dojos. And all during the beginning of June, Kaz Hayashi, the president of Wrestle One, is going to give evaluations, training seminars, basically, and Sonny Ono will be there with him. And the idea is that out of all six dojos, we're going to find the best guys or girls. You know, was, girls are very popular. They wrestle very tight. So, oh, God, yeah. I mean, like, yeah. female wrestling, it leaps it's, and bounds. It's amazing. Yeah, it's now. amazing. So it doesn't matter who, if it's a guy or a girl, male or female, if you're right for this part, if, you, if you've been picked, you're going to go. So... It's called the Wrestle One Alliance. That's who we are now. Gary, Mitch, myself, and Sonny, and Dinoki Dojo with the Wrestle One Alliance, so W1A. And this is sponsored by Fight TV. This oh, wow. is Fight TV is sponsoring this, and this is open to men and women. So it's a nominal for $110. You go out and try out, and it's going to be a week of, if you're picked, you go to Japan, and you're being sponsored there, and you, you'll, you it's not easy. You're going to learn the Japanese style. You're going to train over there. Um, but it's going to be a learning experience for some young talent who, this is like finishing school. Yeah. There's always been some yeah. sort of cross-pollination between the you know, business and promotions, but this is something not heard of because we want to send the first 12 as our alpha class and send them over there and train and learn and bring them over as an, as an entity, but to come back as a cohesive group. And then every year, send a class over there and send a class over there. So now you get wrestlers who are divergent and diverse from all parts of the country but they're training as a unit and they're coming back and you could send them around now around the country that they were trained at, you know they were trained by Russell One by Kas Hayashi by the Great Muda and we have guys in the dojo right now the Inoki Dojo down in Huntington Park that are I'm blown away by some of the talent I've been around the business for a while and I see some of these guys and they blow me away so it's, it's going to be a fun time so that starts June, June 7th the 15th where the last dojo will be um, tryouts the uh, Inoki Dojo you know, a, the Poor Lucha sponsored one. And it's going to be a great day. And that night, June 15th, Saturday night, we're going to have a, a card with uh, Kasayashi wrestling, the main event. Um, here's the opponent to be, to be no, you know, but we're going to have, it's called the Sunny Ono Scramble. Okay. Which is like a kind of a Royal Rumble type of thing. We're going to have all the participants that came to try out. The first match is going to be like a free-for-all. And everyone gets a chance to shine, use their gimmick, try to get over. But it's a moment for wrestlers. Okay, I've trained enough. Let me see how I do in front of an audience, real people and stuff. So the Sunny Ono Scramble will be happening that night, June 15th. It's going to be down Huntington Park, the Inoki Dojo. And 
Uh, I'm looking forward to this. We have guys from Japan coming over for this show. We get the president of the company wrestling. So it's yeah. going to be a fun night. Uh, yeah, I think it's such a, a great opportunity. You know, for, for anyone that's listening that you know has dreams of being a, a wrestler, if you really uh, you know research your favorite wrestlers, most of them would have gone to Japan. Oh, at some absolutely! Point. And this like, is a great offer with room, board, and training is included. I mean, you've got to pay for your flight, but I mean that's phenomenal compared to what you're going to get there. I mean, everyone through the business is gone to Japan from Bruiser Brody to Hulk Hogan to Stan Hansen to uh, everyone to Big ev- Van Vader Vader everyone wrestled I mean everyone Flair's gone over there Austin everyone has gone to Japan and so that's sort of like that is like uh, the finishing school and they and if you can make it in Japan you can make anyone because they're, they're, those they're fans tough. Oh, yeah, they're, <laughs> they're, they're really tough. tough I mean listen it's a tough business but the Japanese take it to a whole different level so guys coming out of Japan who wrestle I, it's it's a feather in the cap. You get forged in fire. Yeah, you, you do, know? and they don't fool around. They don't. They don't fool around. I mean, when you come out of a dojo, an Anoki dojo, a Russell One dojo, or something run by Kasayashi, and that's on your resume, people look at you. Okay, this guy, this guy knows what he's doing. Yeah. I mean, that's years of experience rolled up in like several weeks of just hard training. Damn. Wh- where can people follow you? You know, do you have any shout outs you oh, want to? Well, yeah. Shout? I don't want to be followed. I I'm, I have enough stalkers bothering <laughs> me. Usually, there's tax collectors that follow me, but um. There's a couple of things. I mean, I've, I, I, being in the horror world, you have a lot of friends and stuff, and um, there's a lot of people I've been working with and friends of mine who are doing some interesting stuff, and I'd like to just, if I can, there's a few people I'd like to just uh, acknowledge. There's a group now called Dreaming in Neon, and they play this sort of synthetic 80s Michael Mann, Tangerine, Dream type of music, which I love. And I always said if your life was like a lens fuel giallo movie this would be the soundtrack so uh dreaming in neon you could find them on facebook but their music is just so atmospheric and the great thing about this group it's comprised of uh, filmmakers and musicians and the filmmaker is dm cunningham matt cunningham and uh he has a film coming out short movie called unholy blood i was lucky enough to see and has bill mosley in it and Heather Langerkamp. I love Bill. Bill's great. And Heather Langerkamp from the first. So you it's could, amazing. You could, so it's, it's a, a great sh- cast. It's a great cast. It's a great movie. It's got some nice twist to it. And it's shot well. And it's called Unholy Blood. And, this, and the, ending, the ending shot just blew me away. I can't give it away, but Matt really nailed it. And the other member of this group um, is Chad Cherry. Chad's a friend of mine. Chad sings for a group called The Claws. And The Claws... It's everything rock and roll should be. It's the 3Ds. It's down, dirty, and dangerous. <laughs> so when you see the Claws playing Go, he's a great singer. He's a great performer. So Chad and Matt came together and created this this type of a... We all have a love of horror movies. So this is what they sort of put together. I think it's fantastic. You know, Dreaming in Neon, it's worth checking out. And then I have a... I don't read a lot of comics anymore now because I can't afford them. And, um, but there's one comic coming out that sort of caught my eye. And... Uh, Stephen Peros is the writer. He created it. And uh, Barry Orkin did the artwork. Artwork's great. Even the coloring by Chris Summers is fantastic. But the concept, it's Bram Stoker and H.G. Wells, who are real people, writers, come together, and they form this alliance. And you see how they go to the future, and Dracula's there. And you can see how the making of both of their creative outputs there. And it's called uh, uh, Stoker and Wells. And it's a great concept, and it's gonna be picked up as a um, as a miniseries. I mean, the, the, it's so rich. I mean, there's so much. Then I've been lucky enough to read some of the panels and the storylines, and it's called like the Order of the Golden Dawn, the Stork and Wells story. So if, I, if you're a fan of comics, great storytelling, uh, the potential of being a miniseries because yeah. you're seeing. Bram Stoker is seeing a situation. He takes Dracula from it. H.G. Wells gets the time machine. And this whole adventure is everything mixed together. It's a great concept. It's, a, it's an amazing concept. And he better hire me as, on a staff writer. I'll never talk to him again. <laughs> um, then I got a friend of mine, um, Dennis Bartok. Dennis runs the American Cinematheque, which is a great um, movie place. And he just directed last year a movie called Nails. And Nails is a good film. It's a fun horror film. And he wrote it with a friend of mine, another friend of ours, Tom Abrams. And Tom is also a professor at cinema at USC. But the fun thing about Dennis's movie is it's produced by Joe Kaufman, Joseph Kaufman, who's the original producer on Assault and Precinct 13. Oh, wow. So Joe came in years ago to help out Carpenter, and he comes in again, helps Dennis and Tom. So there's that cinematic lineage with a guy who did That's Assault great. and Precinct 13 Hits it through, so what a great movie! It's just yes, and, and I, I, I love that. I, I, that's a fantastic, and um, 
you know, I like a lot of political thrillers when they're done well, like Alan J. Bakula, but uh, Eric Bross did one last year called uh, Affairs of State. And I didn't think it was the type of movie I'd be interested in until I saw it. And I watched it unfold, and I watched what Eric did behind the story. So I thought that was a pretty interesting idea. It was sort of a throwback to the 70s thrillers and stuff, which you don't see too much. Yeah, there's yeah. more story There's more story involved to it, which I liked about that. Um, more, more depth rather than like, you know, the modern comic book movies that yeah. I don't know what's going on. Yeah, no, I don't watch, I don't watch Marvel films. I don't, I've ne- I, I've I don't watch, well, I don't. That's, that's not a lie, I've not, never seen one. No. I saw like 20 minutes of an Avengers and I, I had to turn it off. No, I, I don't, didn't know what was happening. I don't understand this world, it's crazy, it's a crazy world. Um, like, I, I like, like, one of my friends, um, Alex Zam, just did the Woody Woodpecker movie. Yeah, he, I mean, so so he, it's and he's got some great stuff in that. Him and Billy Robinson wrote it, and uh, and, and they did the Woody Woodpecker film. So there's always some sort of life. I mean, people bringing life back into things. Um, I'm a big Sam Peckinpah fan. Yeah, and um, Chris Candido, who's a well-known composer, he just rescored Major Dundee. And to a lot of people, that'd be sacrilege. But I remember as a kid, I saw Major Dundee. I go, it's a good movie, but the soundtrack is so it's like a sing-along. It's very dark film, and Chris Candido did a great job of just like putting this type of mo- the sound in that made it sound like it belonged in the film all along. So it was a great. I thought that was great. So there's been some um, some stuff on the horizon that's just great. Um, I know a writer, Alice Blanchard. Um, she wrote a book a couple of years ago, Darkness Peering, and it's a really great um, little spin on things. And she has a new book out now, and it's called uh, Close Your Eyes. It's a novella from Amazon. I'm not pushing, but it's a really great little. Because she sort of puts things on its head. Yeah. When I read Darkness Peering, I didn't know who the villain was. And the last person I suspected, and, and I, I thought she was going to do it. She did. She really pulled it out from I didn't expect it at all. She really did a home run with that one. So I thought that was pretty good. I, thought uh, she I like it when it. they pull the swerve. They do. There's always some sort of swerve. They learn that a lot and stuff. So there's just a lot of good stuff out there. I mean, films. Uh, Brad Sykes is a filmmaker. And he wrote a really interesting book called uh, Terror in the Deserts. And it's, it's a book about all the road movies that take place in the desert. You don't realize yeah, how yeah. many. And from Tremis to The Hills Have Eyes, The Hitcher. All, and he yeah. took the whole American Southwest and made a book of all these films. And you realize, oh, that's right. There's a whole subgenre there that Brad came up with. He wouldn't really notice yeah. if he watched all these movies. You can, you can link uh, Bill Mosley to that as well, The Devil's Region. That's right. Bill, yeah, awesome. Bill Mosley for Matt Cunningham's movie. So that's just a great. So there's a lot of stuff out there that people can. Um, can see and um, and it's all it's all sort of like crosses over. Everything sort of crosses yeah. over to some extent, you know. Because um, I've always said wrestling fans and horror fans are the same. The same yeah. guy wearing the Misfits shirt in a wrestling show. It's the same guy wearing at a horror movie or wearing it at a concert. It's the same guy yeah. because if you give someone a product that they love, that's based on emotion, they'll be they'll they'll be loyal. They'll follow you no matter what. No the matter passionate what. Passionate about it. Yeah. Without without the passion. I've always said wrestling fans have a short attention span but a long memory. Yeah. They'll forgive you if you screw up. Um, t- they'll forgive it, but in the long run, they'll always remember. You know, they'll always remember something. And they're, and they're the most passionate fans. I mean, you could talk to any guy at a certain age, and they've got a wrestling story. You know, wrestling fans, they're not just in North America. They're everywhere. Oh, they're you know, everywhere. I've been in Cambodia, and Raw's been on. I've been yeah. in India, and Raw's been yeah. on. It's all over the world. And if you can tell it right, you have a global audience. It has a global audience. I mean, yeah. WrestleMania, he had more people. He was like, it was like the UN yeah. back there. Um, but they can be fickle. And if you do yeah. it wrong, oh, they'll, they, turn they, you. They'll, they'll destroy it. Yeah, so I think the fact that you can never disrespect the fans or their expectations. That's what I've always thought. I go, uh, even telling a story, people, even if it's just wrestling. I mean, there's a lot of emotion involved. When I did this stuff with Eugene and Regal, yeah, yeah. That was emo- I mean, even though it was wrestling, there was some emotional stuff there because it all came down to betrayal. You know, and Regal said this to me. He goes, you know, Dan, no matter how close I get to Eugene as a character, I'm a heel. And yeah. we both, and he said that. We both could kind of sad. He goes, you know, because it was a great storyline where this kid looks to Regal as a sort of this kid who's sort of challenged and William Regal is sort of begrudgingly taking the kid under his wing and starts liking the kid and starts caring for the kid. But then Regal says to me, by nature, I'm a heel and I've got to turn on the kid. And... That's true. Sometimes it's like the scorpion and the frog. You've got to stay true to your nature. Yeah. And uh, even though it's, it, it hurts, but it, it's great for compelling storytelling. So I think, you know, when you watch these guys in the ring, if you're a fan, a casual fan, or, or not at all, you realize the fact to get into the ring, what the journey they have as a performer, as a character, to get to that point and the sacrifice they get to, it's, it's, you can't, 
you know, for every one guy in the ring, there's a thousand literally that have not made it. Yeah, there's dreams he crushed along the way and stuff. So it's a uh, there's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears to get in that ring, and they actually leave it in the ring. When, you know, that's not a joke. I think in many ways, some of the most successful ones they've just followed they followed archetypes that resonate. Yeah, you know, it's it's just that you're putting a different face on the archetype. Yeah, I mean, it, it to not quote Joseph Campbell as people do all the time, but there's so many heroes and villains, and it is this journey because without every character is integral. Without Randy Savage, without Paul Orndorff, without Roddy Piper, there's no mm-hmm. Hulk Hogan. Yes. No matter how great Hogan is, you've got to overcome the obstacles, and the obstacles have to be bigger and bigger. If Andre wasn't slammed by Hulk Hogan, there'd be no Hulkamania. We wouldn't be where we are. That's just the way it is. Yeah. Wrestling would be big, but it wouldn't be that astronomical. So, you know, it's every challenge. You've got to come across a challenge and slay this beast and make it bigger and bigger. And so wrestling has just uh, always been an outlet to overcoming things. I mean, you step in that ring, like every kid, when you a wrestler steps in that ring, he's that wrestler. Yeah, he's he wants to be Hogan. He wants to be this. He wants to be big in life, the ultimate warrior. This is what he wants. He couldn't be in the playground. He couldn't be in the school ground, but he could sit in TV and watch the wrestling ring. And yeah, it comes yeah, out that, that kid. He he lives through the wrestler. Yeah, you know he he watches the wrestler take on their adversaries, and uh, they gain strength from it. You know maybe they're being bullied at school and they they wish they could do that, yeah. but from watching uh, a wrestler do it. They live it. They Confidence. Live and, they, and, they see, and they see, more importantly, they don't always win, but they get up. Yeah. They get up. That's the thing in life, you know. Uh, what we can learn from the wrestling is, you know, you don't always win, but you get up. And it's every time you get up, you get stronger, you get smarter. You don't got to win every match, but you got to learn from every match. That's the most important thing. If you walk out of the ring and your hand's not held up, but your head's held up, it's different. So I think that's a great learning point. Well, thank you very much for coming in, Dan. I appreciate you. I appreciate you coming in here. It's been an interesting conversation. It's been uh, fantastic. I want to thank you. I want to thank everybody. I want to shout out to my friend Mick Garris, the director. Mick has a great podcast himself called uh, Postmortem. He's having, for the first time on a podcast, Stephen King. Oh, wow. Stephen King is going to be on, and I think that is amazing because I met Mick through Toby Hooper, who was like my dad. So me and Mick were very close to Toby. So I can't wait to hear what Stephen King has to say about a lot of stuff. And, and I'm telling you, without breaking confidence, it's going to be, Mick told me, it's going to be a wild. It's going to be wild. Uh, I'm really excited for yeah. that. Postmortem, uh, Mick Garris. All I can say is it's going to be very interesting what Mick gets out of him. M-O-O-N, that spells Stephen King. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Dan. My pleasure. That was a fun chat with Dan Madigan. So many more stories I'd love to hear, so I'll be talking with Dan again soon. I listened to the Mick Garris post-mortem podcast with Stephen King, and it, it was great, so definitely be sure to check that out. Mick Garris had actually directed one of my favorite films, The Stand. My sister and I are still quoting that movie more than two decades later. The Rat Man forgive you this time. So thank you for listening. Catch you next time on Donkey Does Hollywood.